Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. So let's thank you, Warren. Warren, welcome. Chris Edwards. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. So, uh, just very briefly, first of all, I want you, everybody to know that I recognize that climate change might not be uh, the most exciting thing you want to hear about. Important, no doubt, but exciting. A lot of people have this baggage attached to those two words, and that at very least it's going to be, oh, this is, this is just not a whole lot of fun. It's, it seems like it's always bad news, and I don't know if there's anything we can do about it. You know, look, I wish I could spend the next hour talking about funny things that happened to me in my TV career, and we could all have some laughs instead. Maybe we'll have a chuckle or two. But I do want you to know that the climate change that we're going to talk about tonight is simple, it's serious, but especially I want everybody to be really clear about this last one. It's solvable. There, You will leave this room with hope that we can make changes that make a difference and with some concrete ideas in case you're interested in that, and you will definitely get the simple and the serious part about the science, because this presentation is based on scientific fact. Before I go any farther, very briefly on me, I started studying climate change in the mid-80s as an environmental and science reporter, and have been doing so ever since. During the course of my career, and I am retired from television now, but during the course of my career as a reporter and a meteorologist and a climate person, I have watched climate change go from a theoretical expectation with modest observation of change to something that is almost literally making the front page uh, just about every week somewhere in this country and certainly in the world. So I don't profess to know all the answers, but I have watched it from a very interesting perspective as it has evolved over these last 35 plus years and bring some of that to the table. However, I'm very grateful to the folks at Climate Central who helped to put this together. We work together on this. Now, Climate Central is a policy neutral nonprofit news organization that analyzes and reports on climate science. I've been working with their meteorologists since about 2008, which is when they actually started at Climate Central. And this is a presentation of facts derived from the latest scientific consensus. And once again, if you leave here with nothing else, I want you to know it's simple, it's serious, it's solvable. We'll go over each of those elements, and you will be able to decide for yourself which is your favorite. Uh, simple means we understand the problem. Serious means it's having impacts that are obvious and accelerating, and solvable kind of speaks for itself. We still have the potential to avoid the worst impacts, and we will talk about that as well. So let's start with the simple part, which I always think is a nice place to start with simple. So here's the simple part about climate change. Humans burn fossil fuels. We've been doing that for a long time, particularly since late in the 1800s. And this burning puts carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. When I say fossil fuels, I mean coal, oil, and natural gas. Those are the things we're talking about. Now, carbon dioxide, therefore, goes into the atmosphere. Well, so what? Well, 
The reason that's important is that's a greenhouse gas and it makes the planet warmer than it would otherwise be. Our atmosphere is composed mostly of nitrogen and oxygen, but it has important trace amounts of greenhouse gases. Greenhouse gases, as we'll talk about, are gases that trap heat closer to the surface of the Earth. And those gases are water vapor, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. And we're really going to focus mostly on carbon dioxide and to a lesser degree, though we'll talk about methane as well. Even though together they make up less than 1%, they have a very huge, you could say, outsized role to play in the atmosphere and what goes on. And most of us have heard about the greenhouse effect. You know, actually, I go back long enough in studying climate change that I remember back in the early 80s, this entire phenomenon, which was largely a theory at that time, uh, was called the greenhouse effect. But that was really kind of a misnomer because the greenhouse effect is something entirely different, something very important. But this shows you how the greenhouse effect works. Now, first of all, sunlight reaches the Earth, obviously, from a long way away, but it, a lot of it does reach the Earth. And some of that energy is reflected back into space. However, some of that energy is absorbed and re-radiated re back to the ground as heat. Now, most of the heat absorbed by the greenhouse gases is reflected in all directions, and it warms the Earth. It's a very good thing we have the greenhouse effect. As it is, with the greenhouse effect helping to warm the Earth, the average temperature of the Earth is close to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. If we didn't have the greenhouse effect, that's 60 degrees on average, though that number is going up. If we did not have the greenhouse effect, the average temperature on Earth would be closer to zero Fahrenheit. So it's a very, very good thing that we have it. But the important point is that slight changes in greenhouse gas concentra concentrations can alter the climate and affect the world all around us. Now, part of the simple in this is science that's been understood for a long time. Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. We have known that a long time. Back in the 1820s, so going back a long way, Joseph Fournier from France proposed that there were gases in the atmosphere that were keeping Earth warmer than it would be without them. It's 200 years ago. Then in the 1850s, Eunice Foote, an American scientist, discovered that carbon dioxide warmed the air around it. And I have to stop very briefly and give a big shout out to Eunice Foote, a woman in science many, many years ago who made genuine breakthroughs in spite of the fact she wasn't even able to go to schools that most of the men were. And I just have to make a point that women in science have done amazing things, continue to do amazing things, and we can rely on them to do a lot of that. Our own daughter is a microbiologist in Seattle, and she is literally working on curing cancer. So women in science, here's to them. Then moving to the, excuse me, moving to the 1890s, Arrhenius, proposed, very interestingly from Sweden, that a doubling of atmospheric carbon dioxide, according to his computations, would raise the Earth's temperature by several degrees. Again, that was back in the 1890s. And in the 1930s, Guy Stewart Callender from England kind of refined Arrhenius's calculations. He made the first climate projections well before we had any computers, and he assembled the evidence for global warming. As a matter of fact, so important was his work that this entire issue is sometimes called the calendar effect rather than the greenhouse effect. And again, that's almost 100 years ago. 
that he came up with that. So carbon dioxide plays a crucial role in regulating the temperature of the planet, as we've known for a long time. In the 1800s, as I mentioned, humans started burning fossil fuels in a big way. It fueled the Industrial Revolution around large parts of the world. First it was coal, then it was oil and natural gas. And these fuels powered that revolution, raised the living standards of millions and millions of people over, all over the world, but that also increased the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it led to the question, if Calendar and the others were correct, we should see temperature rise as the CO2 increases. So let's look at the data. This is a plot of carbon dioxide as measured in the atmosphere starting in the late 1800s, baseline around 290, these are parts per million, and then what it has been doing in the years since. Obviously, the trend is very, very clear. Uh, latest readings around 417, 418 parts per million, which, by the way, is about 50% higher than pre-industrial levels. So that's what the carbon dioxide has been doing. What has the temperature been doing? Well, there's a temperature plot over the top of it, and even though obviously there are some variations, the relationship is pretty clear. As carbon dioxide goes up, it's causing the planet to warm. Now, I mentioned briefly before that carbon dioxide is one of the main things we're going to concentrate on, but a brief moment for methane, because methane concentration, this particular plot only goes back to the early 80s, so we're talking about around 40 years, but still methane concentrations are going up significantly as well. And what I'll say about methane right now is, even though it's in smaller amounts than carbon dioxide, it is a much more potent gas for warming the planet, molecule per molecule. It's about 35 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So we care about what's happening with methane also. The good news about methane is that methane breaks down in the atmosphere in 8 to 10 years. Carbon dioxide takes a whole lot longer to move out of the atmosphere. So let's take a moment to uh, look at our area and see how, because this is a global phenomenon, it's important that we not forget that, but let's look at the, uh, the Detroit area. Going back a few years, maybe we're into the childhoods of many people here. In a nutshell, 48.5 degrees in the 70s was the average temperature. You take the high and low every day, average it out for 365 days, you get 48.5 degrees. What is it in the most recent decade that we completed? About 51.5 degrees. Now, that works out to 3 degrees by my math. That's considerable, and I might add, it's more than the average warmth around the world. But again, remember, we're talking about a global phenomenon. Some areas have warmed more, some have warmed less, some we have a better data set for than others. But really, I mainly include this slide just to give you a little local idea of what this means, even though this is a global issue. So breaking it down a little further, what of our seasons have changed the most? Now, maybe your own personal experience might bear this out, or maybe not. But basically, winter has warmed the most. Spring, not, not nearly as much. Summer and fall, fairly modest amounts. But winter in, in this area has warmed the most. In other parts of the world, it's been different, but that's what the data shows for us, and that's what we're talking about here is the data. And speaking of that, we know CO2 affects temperature, CO2 or carbon dioxide. Climate scientists have these computer models that are very sophisticated to predict how the Earth will respond to the rising CO2. 
Now, the earlier versions that I started looking at closely in the 80s predicted the warming that we're seeing now. The models tell us two things. The amount of warming depends on the future carbon emissions. And if we reduce the emissions, which you see in green, then we will re reduce the path of warming. Once again, that part's pretty simple. The longer we wait, the worse it gets. And that's pretty clear. So, that's the simple part. Now let's talk a little bit about Sirius, because as simple as it is, it is also serious. What are the consequences that we're talking about? Warming leads to other changes in the atmosphere. And we have to remember, three-quarters of the planet is ocean, is water. So even though we live on land, it's having impacts in the water and oceans as well. We'll talk more about that. We're seeing the warming leading to wilder weather and rising seas. So let's talk about that a little bit more. Now, when we talk about these averages, averages are important. They help us understand things. But it's also important for us to recognize that as the averages move over in time, the instances of extreme heat increase and the instances of significant heat increase. Conversely, the amount of cold goes down and the amount of extreme cold goes way down. Now, it does not mean we don't have extreme cold outbreaks. We do, we will, we have, but they will be less. And conversely, the extreme heat will be more significant. Now, we here in Metro Detroit, in the summer that just recently ended, did not have a particularly blisteringly hot summer. It was actually, by a lot of measures, not far from long-term averages. But in Europe, they had one of the hottest summers they've ever had, followed by one of the hottest weeks in November that they've ever had last week. The Mediterranean Sea was warmer than it's ever been recorded to be. So keep in mind, from one year to the next, we may or may not see certain impacts where we are, but in other parts of the world, they continue to see these things bear out. So talk a moment about the cost of this. And these are billion-dollar disasters. These are events in this country which caused at least a billion dollars in damage related to weather, obviously, because the wilder weather creates more damage. The long-term average is about seven such events, a long-term average. And by the way, i just tell you right now, these are all inflation-adjusted, so we do not have any inflation issues here. What's going on is that we're having more of these with each passing year, and it particularly highlighted 2021 and 2020, when there were at least 20 such billion-dollar disasters. And we don't have the graphic updated yet because the year isn't over yet, but in this year, 2022, we've had 15. Hurricane Ian was the 15th, and Hurricane Ian is likely to exceed $75 billion in damage. So when we talk, as we will in a little while, about... Uh, changes that could be made, and we think about the fact that that's expensive, which it is and will be, so too is the current path expensive and likely to get more so. And these are just dollars. We're not talking about lives at this point. That's in the United States. That's in the United States, although the data is somewhat similar in other heavily developed parts of the world. Obviously, in lesser developed areas, it's, uh, it's not as much of an economic impact in terms of infrastructural damage. All right, 
Again, back to Detroit here briefly. These are just the number of record highs in red versus the number of record lows. So for a, back to 1870, so for a lot of decades, we had more record highs than lows. Obviously, this is before any of us were born. We had a period in the 50s, 60s, and 70s where we actually had more record lows than highs. But look what has happened even here locally in the last 30 years, swamped by more record, record hot weather compared to record cold weather. This might be the childhood of some of us in this room, in this area. You might have some recollections. Wow, it seemed like it was cold. Is it just my imagination? It isn't all your imagination, but the recent data is very different from that going back a ways. So globally, I just want to go back for a moment. Remember, this is just Metro Detroit. Globally, the top 10 warmest years ever recorded have all happened since 2005. Let that sink in. The top 10 ever recorded have all happened since 2005. So something else is changing along with the warming snowfall patterns are changing. The late fall and early spring snow is on the decline in a majority of locations. I actually overheard somebody here say it used to be, it, it used to be that we had snow by Thanksgiving, or excuse me, by Halloween. I overheard it used to be we had snow by Halloween. And that I did not have the pleasure of growing up in this area, but there is data to support that. The fact that we're getting a little snow is a weather issue, not climate. But the truth of the matter is we are seeing shorter snow seasons here and in many other parts of the world. And that means a lot of different things. It means that less of the snow in mountain locations out west, less snow falls, there's less snow to last through the summer to be the water source for the warmer months because more precipitation is falling as rain and running off right away. That exacerbates the, the uh, water problems that they have in the western United States. The other thing to remember, and we'll touch more on this in a moment, the warmer the air is, the more moisture it can hold. And we'll talk more about how that leads to flooding as well. Just want to spend a moment on glacier, glacier retreating. I could literally stand here and show you pictures like this, uh, 2012, seven years later, and how the glacier, this one's in Alaska, the Bear Glacier in Alaska. Uh, I could show you pictures like this, and they would be some beautiful scenes but they all look somewhat similar to this. It doesn't really matter what latitude or what elevation because mountain glaciers are retreating very quickly as well. Um, what does matter and what's important to note is that the warming trend is accelerated near the poles. So the North Pole region is warming anywhere from two to three times faster than our latitudes. Same thing with the South Pole with a little more irregularity in the South Pole. But this imagery illustrates for us that these huge rivers of ice are melting very quickly, and that's happening all over the world. I mentioned earlier about oceans and how they are also absorbing a lot of the water. As a matter of fact, most estimates show that at least 90% of the extra heat that we have put into Earth's atmosphere has been absorbed by the oceans. By this measure, 93%, it bounces around a little bit. Anyway, a lot of it has. And wherever you see this red shading, red or orange, these are warmer ocean temperatures than the long-term averages. And this is going back 120 years, what has happened. So one of the issues is that, that um, ocean climate scientists are pretty sure that up to this point, 
the uh, oceans have done a tremendous job of warming. Unfortunately, it's changed the biology of the oceans in major ways, but we don't notice it as much because that's not where we live. But they're also pretty sure that the oceans are pretty much to the point where they're saying, that's, that's it. That's about, that's about all we can take in terms of absorbing the extra heat. So now we start to go into where what happens with the extra heat. Before I leave this slide really quickly, those that are astute at reading maps might notice something right here. That's colder. What the heck's going on right there? Everybody warm almost everywhere else. What the heck's going on right there? Well, it's green. A continent covered with glacial ice, which continues to melt at an incredibly rapid pace, and it's dumping cold, fresh water into the North Atlantic and making it colder than it used to be. So it's been going on a long, long time. We've known about it for a long, long time, long enough to get it, give it a nifty scientific acronym, the AMOC, or the Atlantic Meridional Oceanic Circulation. I just call it the big cold blob in the North Atlantic. Unfortunately, the Gulf Stream does this. It goes like this. And the Gulf Stream has a lot to do with weather pattern. And when the Gulf Stream hits this cold water that didn't used to be there, it messes up weather patterns in a significant way, which have a huge impact on Western Europe, especially. Now, we know why it's there. We know that it recurs. But then the big question is, what does it mean for our weather patterns? And this is one of those examples, even though I'm presenting to you the latest science and understanding of climate change, we don't know. We don't know. We're conducting an experiment with the planet, and we don't know how that part's going to work out. But we know it's going to be somehow disruptive to weather patterns around the world. And I mentioned before how the oceans are taking up a lot of the warming. This is the change in sea level going back 2,000 years or 20 centuries. Up a little here, flat, down a little, down a little more, and then up a little more, and then there's the last 100 years. It's the sea level around the world has gone up different measures, but, but several inches and much more than anything we've seen in the record in the previous 19 centuries. Now, it's partly because of melting glaciers, but for whatever it's worth, it's also largely because warmer water takes up more space. It expands. So the oceans of the world are expanding, not just being added to, but the rise in the last hundred years is unprecedented as we see those dynamics unfold. Very briefly, it kind of goes, it, it makes reasonable sense that as we have higher tides, we have more coastal flooding. Now, is that an immediate concern to those of us in Metro Detroit? No, but there are literally hundreds of millions of people around the world that live within 20 feet of sea level, and it has huge implications for them. And it's a pretty steady pro progress in terms of the upward movement of the oceans around the world. Really important point here. As the air warms, it holds more water vapor. A warmer atmosphere is a potentially more humid one. I mean, think about the summer around here. It's humid in the summer because it's warmer and the air holds more water. It's not so much in the winter because colder air doesn't hold as much water. So what does that mean? An increase in temperature allows more evaporation into the atmosphere. As the graphic says, a one degree increase allows 4% more water vapor to be in the atmosphere. It effectively supercharges the water cycle. It increases the amount of rain and snow in heavy precipitation events. But, and this is the part 
that seems counterintuitive. It also leads to larger, longer droughts in certain areas. If the trigger is not there to release the larger amounts of moisture, then you can have longer and worse droughts. So wet areas get wetter, dry areas get drier, increases the potential for extremes in both directions. Now, how does that play out in our part of the world? Well, these are regions, regions around the country, and showing where the precipitation events have become more significant. And you can see in the Great Lakes region of the Midwest, whatever you choose to call it, 42% increase in heavy precipitation events over the period here. And this is about 60 years that's shown here. 55% increase in the Northeast. These are the increase in heavy precipitation events. The ones that increasingly seem to be making the news, like the one in uh, eastern Kentucky this summer that killed a lot of people in St. Louis that led to some fatalities as well, uh, increasing in and around uh, Metro Washington, D.C. Now, is some of that, is some of the flooding due to infrastructure and more pavement? Yes, it is. But the precipitation itself is also tending to get heavier and fall in more significant bursts of precipitation, particularly in this part of the country to a lesser degree in the West. And by the way, even if they're having a horrendous drought in the West, which they are, if they get an inch of rain in two hours, it's largely wasted. It just runs off. That's a horrendous outcome. But unfortunately, we're seeing more of that as well. So once again, let's bring that down to Metro Detroit. Average hourly rainfall in hundreds of an inch going back about 50 years. And you can see the slope of that, the averaging out of these events goes like this. Unfortunately, last summer we had three events here that were really destructive. In, and when I say here, I mean Metro Detroit, uh, not in the immediate Warren area. You guys, I think, uh, took it very badly in 2014 with that particular heavy precipitation event. But uh, in summer of 2021, they had an event in um, June 26th where they actually got over eight inches of rain in less than 24 hours in Gross Point. And to say that the system was overwhelmed is an understatement. Extremely costly in many ways, both in terms of dollars and uh, loss of people's property. So this is something that we're ex we expected to see more of. We are seeing more of it both locally and in other parts of the world. A brief moment on hurricanes. Again, this is not something that we have to deal with here, but I want to spend a brief moment on it because many people either know somebody that is in a hurricane-prone area or they visit hurricane-prone areas, and also because there's been a lot of let's just say, not the most informed talk about hurricanes that we sometimes see in the immediate wake of something like Ian. Here's what we know about hurricanes and climate change. Warmer water is more fuel. The water, warm water, is the fuel for hurricanes. So there's more fuel. So they can produce heavier rain. They can also bring a higher storm surge, if for no other reason than the fact that the sea level is starting from a higher point anyway. But there's been a lot of very intense research about this. And here's what, what I can tell you there is not a connection to. It does not necessarily mean there are going to be more hurricanes because of climate change. The data does not support that. And if somebody says otherwise, they're not referencing the latest climate science. Not that there will be more, 
but there is the greater potential for big, powerful hurricanes that last longer and can do more damage. And some very interesting research in just the last two or three years shows that in a climate change environment, hurricanes tend to slow down before they make landfall, and they tend to increase quickly before landfall. And unfortunately, that's what happened with Ian, and it's happened with many hurricanes that struck the Gulf Coast in the last 10 years or so. That's what we know about hurricanes and some things where the science continues to evolve. Now, on the flip side of the coin, drought. I touched on this before. This is a measure of the intensity of drought going all the way back to 1900 in the western United States, which is much more prone to drought than we are here. And you can see here again a pretty clear relationship, though there are periods where the drought eases. It's getting deeper and longer and more extreme. They're actually involved in um, California, Nevada, parts of Utah, and into Arizona. They are in the worst drought that they've seen in about since basically the 1200s. It's been a long, long time since they've seen a drought as persistent as what they have going on right now. And of course, that leads to a lot of different problems, not least of which is fires. These unfortunately make a lot of news too as the acreage of burned land increases because it's hotter, it's drier. There's also been a lot of uh, trees that have been killed, and so there are millions of standing trees in the western United States that have been killed, and as a result, they're basically just sitting there as, uh, as kindling for fires. The spruce and pine beetles have killed millions of trees out west. Unfortunately, there's a climate change link there, their larvae used to be killed off by the intense cold of winter, and that's not happening as much as it used to. So the large wildfires in the West not only make climate change worse because of the pollutants they release, but they are in part driven by climate change. So obviously this is serious. Um, we've talked about some of the impacts already. Nature, health, and the economy. These are wilder weather events that are happening as the climate warms. And these are some of the things that you might see on your local or network news. The droughts, the wildfires, all of that is significant. But there are other impacts as well. Remembering, we are not the only species on the planet, of course. Climate change impacts the natural world in a huge way. Animals and plants that are adapted to specific climate conditions have to try to react very, very quickly to change. And that's a point I'll make here briefly. People sometimes say the climate has changed before. Absolutely it has. It has changed dramatically before over the millions of years that the planet has been around. Absolutely it has. The difference here and what makes it hard on so many of these ecosystems and the animals that live within them is the speed of the change. Nothing like this. Nothing like this in terms of the rapid nature of the rise of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases like methane has ever happened in at least the last million years that we have pretty good data on through ice core samples and that sort of thing. So the problem is that we as a civilization have populated this planet and uh, they estimate that either today or yesterday the eight billionth person on the planet was born we have populated this planet and built our civilizations during a time 
of relative climate stability up until this point, and the changes that have happened in the past have happened over a much, much, much longer period of time than what we're dealing with now. So these animals try to adapt. They will move north or toward the poles, or they'll go to higher elevations if they can. But the seasonal cycles get disrupted. Plants start blooming earlier in the spring. It's a mismatch then between predators and prey. And some ecosystems like coral reefs are particularly sensitive to temperature differences and changes. They've been severely impacted by warming and the heat waves in the ocean. Now, health is impacted by worsening air quality. Pollution is worse. Physical activity gets tougher. Working outside, mosquito and tick-borne diseases increase. Longer allergy seasons, even things like poison ivy can be more widespread in a warmer climate. Some impacts on food and farming, because obviously the way our food is made has a lot to do with the climate. It affects the people working on those farms. It, the wild weather events like the flooding and drought impact them significantly. Planting zones are shifting to the north or poleward. Crop diseases tend to spread and stick around longer than what they used to. Now we can take a breath. I could go on and on about the serious, but I think you get the idea. Because my favorite part is to talk about the solvable. It won't be easy. I'll just tell you that going into this. It's not easy, but here's the gist of it. We need to make cuts, and we've dawdled a long time. Had we started making changes back in here when the science was not as accepted as it is now, it would be easier, but here's where we are. These are the temperatures. This is the temperature graph and what's been happening with our emissions. If we cut the emissions, we're going to make a difference in the temperature graph. These targets on the side, by the way, 1.5 Celsius. Unfortunately, most of the world works in Celsius, but this is about 3 degrees Fahrenheit. This is what we're targeting to try to stop it at about 3 degrees Fahrenheit. How much have we warmed so far? Close to 2 degrees Fahrenheit. If we get to 4 degrees Celsius, which is close to 8 degrees Fahrenheit, by the end of this century, I don't really even want to talk about what that would mean. It's not something that we really want to ponder. But we need to stabilize CO2 levels by the middle of the century. We have to reduce emissions, and we have to work some of the potential to pull some of the emissions out of the atmosphere that we put in. So it's about reducing what we put in and also pulling some of that out of the atmosphere. Now, let's look at some of the issues. This is greenhouse gas source emission in our country. Obviously, it varies in different countries, but this is how we get to solving the issue, solving the problem. Largely, transportation and electricity, between the two of them, we're talking about almost 60% of where our greenhouse gas emissions come from. But it's not inconsequential. Industry at 22%. Here you see commercial and residential and even agriculture. Agriculture accounts for about 10% of the emissions. We already have solutions to reduce emissions significantly in every one of these sectors. It may seem, especially in the Motor City, that the transportation one gets the most attention. And with good reason, it is a big piece of the pie but there are many other pieces of the pie. And how do we get there? Well, 
Solar on the left. This is where the solar energy shines in our country. Most significantly, the longest in the southwestern United States, in the deserts of the southwest. But this is a not insignificant chunk of potential energy, even in our part of the country. And how about the wind? East of the Rockies and the high plains, the western high plains, that's where the greatest wind potential is. But there's a lot all over the country, as well as off the coasts. And a lot of people don't realize, in the last 10 years alone, the cost of solar energy in this country has gone down 90%. The cost of wind energy has gone down about 70%. And that trend is expected to continue. It's bumped up a little bit with the inflation that has affected lots of sectors in the last year, year and a half. But the long-term trend is still pretty clear that these clean energy potentials exist and can be cheaper than what they even are now. So let's talk a little bit about electrifying transport. We know how to produce electricity from renewable sources. So we can use that energy to help move us around. What we need to do, convert cars, buses, other sources of transportation from fossil fuels to running on clean electricity. Electric vehicles cheaper, we all know that. You know, GM, not too long ago, uh, committed to an all-EV fleet by 2035 and carbon neutral as a company by 2040. That's, that's significant. That's not just PR. Uh, that is a huge leader in the transportation world that's making a commitment. But it isn't just transportation. Our buildings, we saw in that previous slide that the buildings are an important part of things. We use a lot of energy to heat and cool our buildings, and architecture and building design increase energy efficiency, and that means less energy is required. Electric heat pumps are a, an efficient replacement for natural gas and for heating systems, oil heating systems, for instance. Uh, there are some parts of the country which are uh, regulating that natural gas furnaces and stoves will not be put in future buildings in part because though natural gas is a cleaner greenhouse gas than oil or coal, it still produces greenhouse gas emissions, and we're trying to make our buildings more energy efficient and use less problematic energy. We can also build better soils. We can reduce emissions from different farming practices, lowering methane emissions, which is another potent greenhouse gas that I talked about earlier. Uh, we can do that by using better techniques for our farming. Reducing the tilling of the planting cover crops can keep carbon, water, and important nutrients in the soils and not escaping into the atmosphere. And of course, a little less of an issue here, but we, we do have forests, we have grasslands, we have peatlands, we don't have coastal wetlands. But these areas are hugely important because they take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and convert it into plant tissue. So we need to protect these areas wherever we can. Maintaining and protecting them from development protects, protects, prevents this carbon from entering the atmosphere and helps absorb the uh, water, the floodwaters, and obviously coastal wetlands, which in many places in this country have been wiped out. If they can be restored, they help in numerous ways. Once again, localize things to Detroit. How about something as simple as trees? Now, these are the trees that are here. 
the trees that are here in Detroit, these are annual benefits to Detroit. Now, it's estimated that 90% of the wetlands in Wayne County have been wiped out since 1800, so most of the wetlands are gone. Can we replace them? Let's be reasonable. No. However, we can make some progress by planting trees. It's not going to solve There's no single answer to what's going to solve the problem. But this is part of the solution, because even the trees that we have in the area uh, take out almost 2 million tons of CO2 every year. And 5 billion gallons of storm water runoff are avoided. And about 55 million pounds of air pollution are absorbed by the trees that we have. And by the way, uh, the city of Detroit announced last month they're planning to plant 75,000 trees in the next five years. And this is part of the reason why they're doing it. So as I, as I get ready to conclude, I want to appeal to our imaginations just a little bit, to reach the goals that we need to, which is to try to keep it to about three degrees Fahrenheit. We need to make big changes, and we need to do them quickly. But you know what? We have made huge changes in the past. And when I say we, I might mean this country or humanity. I mean, indoor plumbing, municipal water systems, when they came into favor, excluding the Romans, who didn't have it quite as well down, but indoor plumbing increased not only the daily life and made it safer, but huge jumps in our average lifespan as a result of indoor plumbing. And that was a massive task to undertake, but we did it. How about the space age? As President Kennedy said, we did it not because it was easy, but because it was hard. It was hard, and we did it. We put a human being on the moon, and we have some incredible technologies, computing advances and other things, that are a result of the space age and the commitment we made to do that. Even satellite data, which helps us learn more about the environment, comes from the space age. And then there's the information technology revolution. I mean, it was just 15 years ago that the first iPhone hit the market. 15 years ago. For those of us that have been around a few years, that's the blink of an eye. And how much have we changed the world with the information technology in a relatively short period of time? Those were all big things, and there were a lot of people that said we couldn't do it. But when we reduce the emissions from fossil fuels, it's a win-win. It creates jobs and new industries. Is there disruption? Absolutely, yes. There will be, but it doesn't mean it's a worse future, not by any means. So I ask you to think for a moment, why would you work to combat climate change? This is my own personal reason, two of them actually, daughter, son, and their as yet unborn children. I want them to be able to inhabit a planet that allows them to do the things that we have been blessed to be able to do and see. And it really comes down to something for all of us. There's a some reason for each and every one of us to do whatever we can to help combat climate change and to move forward. So, in brief review, it's simple because this science goes back to the 1800s. It's serious. We're already feeling it increasingly, and it will only accelerate. And some of it is baked in already. But some of it, a lot of it, isn't. 
and this is the most important point in my view, we have what we need to make changes. We have the science, we have the technology. The question is, do we have the will? That's perhaps another question. Um, special thanks to Scott Denning, a great guy at Colorado State who helped put this framework together for simple, serious, and solvable. And before I put that last frame up, I want to make a very obvious distinction here. I've been talking here and presenting to you the climate science facts based on the latest information that we have. Um, when I started talking to people about this, um, I would always constantly get as the first question, what can we do? So I put together with, uh, with work with a lot of good people, I put together 10 things. Don't we Americans love 10 things? A list of 10 things. Um, 10 things that we can do to help. But I want to make it very obvious that this is a transition from the pre presentation of facts to something that isn't all factual. Whenever you're talking about making changes, it's, it's sort of policy-based. Um, and so these are suggestions because people constantly ask, but I want to briefly go over them. And they're not really in any particular order, 10 things you can do to help combat climate change, except for this first one. I did put this one up here intentionally. Talk to people about climate change. Probably the most important thing we can do is have conversations about climate change. That doesn't mean you have to be spouting all these numbers about emissions and targets and Celsius and, and the uh, Atlantic meridional cold patch. It just means have a conversation, help people talk it out. Because you know, there's some very interesting information that shows that only one in three Americans ever talks about climate change but about two-thirds of Americans are concerned. You might have somebody sitting next to you or your neighbor or the person in the elevator that has a lot of concern, but they're not talking about it, and you're not talking about it, and neither of you ever know. And so you presume, oh, this is sort of sometimes a hot-button issue. And it is. Come to people where they are, wherever they are. Everybody has a reason to be concerned about climate change. Some people might not even like the wording climate change, you don't have to talk about it with those words. How about this weird weather we keep having? Why is it so hot? What is it? What is changing? You don't necessarily have to use those words. But the point is, talk to people about climate change. This is what I am doing in a more formal way, but I just about every single day, I have some sort of an informal conversation with somebody about climate change. I just kind of bring up What's going on? Is that maybe a little easier for me because of what I did for a living? Perhaps, but it's doable for everybody. So, also, plant trees. We talked about that. The city of Detroit is doing that. Either fly less and or purchase carbon allowances. Unfortunately, we haven't come up with a clean energy way yet. Biofuels are being investigated. There are, there are some things that are extremely prohibitively expensive for flying without greenhouse gas emissions. But if you do fly and no one is suggesting that you shouldn't ever fly. But carbon allowances, this is one website where you can learn about carbon allowances, which can offset the carbon that is put into the atmosphere. Eat less meat and dairy. By the way, very briefly, livestock produces methane, and methane's a big issue, as we talked about before. Also, a lot of land has to be cleared, i.e. trees cut down, in order for ranches to support livestock around the world. And that's why less meat is better for the issue of climate change. Leave the car at home more. I, I put this in here 
These are nice little bonus ways, five, six, and eight, to also save money. Uh, and or you could say an EV car, but not everybody can do that for a lot of reasons, although after the legislation passed a few months ago, it's going to become more reachable for many people. Reduce your energy use. In, if you have the ability and opportunity and privilege to be able to invest, you can invest with climate change in mind. Cut your consumption and waste. That's a huge one that saves money and helps many aspects of the environment. Join uh, local groups. Michigan, I, I suggest going to uh, Google and just type in those words or something close to it. Michigan groups tackle climate change. Uh, type in whatever you want. Also, a very good one is climate change lobby. Climate change lobby has been around now for all, also about 15 years. And they have a chapter here in Metro Detroit. And it's a nonprofit, nonpartisan group that is working for this and has a lot of concrete ideas that individuals can do. And then here's something that's been in the news in the last week or so. Vote with climate in mind, which it appears a lot of Michiganders did. So with that, I thank you for your patience. Straight from the Author has been brought to you by MyWarn. To hear more podcasts like this, visit MyWarn.org. Again, that's MIWarn.org.